Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are for another Baffling Combustions session. And my name is Sam Truitt. I'm Sparrow. And I'm Andrew McCarran. And what we're going to talk about today is salt. And we may touch on its actual occurrence, that is, as sodium chloride, you know, with the understanding that salt is a crystalline element, um, part of a family of salts. Um, they're crystals, and that, you know, most of the ocean has salt in it. Uh, portions of our body have salt in it. Organic matter generally is has salt stirred into it. Um, in terms of our human experience, it's, um, you know, from the beginning of what we are, and I guess about 6,000 BC plus or minus, um, you see the first emergence of salt mines. Um, oh, right. You know, it became a big part of commerce, of relations between peoples. Um, you say, like, were... he's worth his salt because people were paid in salt. I think, what, what was it? It was, it, was, it was a currency. Yeah, sailors maybe were paid in salt. Yeah, so it's been inextricably linked to the human experience. Um, but, and also, know. salt is civilization. This is one of my theories, that um, salt is kind of coincident with the beginning of civilization. Civilization meaning cities. So the cities appear in uh, the Fertile Crescent around the same time we're talking about 5,000 years ago. And uh, that is coincident with agriculture. If you're hunting and gathering, if you're going around eating natural wild herbs and foods and killing deer, eating animals, you don't need salt. The, what you need salt for is once you start having a grain diet, growing, uh, you know, barley and wheat and rice in fields and having real agriculture, then you need salt because it doesn't taste good without the salt. I mean, that's my analysis of the, the, the problem. I think tribal people don't have salt, but interestingly, they have sugar. Why? Because uh, maple trees naturally produce sugar and uh, bees naturally produce sugar. So, I mean, they have not refined sugar, but they have uh, uh, sweet foods. 
sugars, you could say. Sorry, is part of your civilization and salt thesis is is part of that? Um, does part of that relate to salt as a preser- preservant as well? Yes, I was thinking what? about salt as a preservative, but salt is used. What is it used to preserve? Fish, right? Uh, meat, I think. Any meat. If if you put meat into salt raw meat it, it will preserve it for a lengthy period of time and uh is they still there's still some kind of fish people eat salted fish right isn't that i don't eat fish so i don't really know for sure but i think there's i think that's still done to this day maybe in places like norway i think salt is used as a preservative in you know if its use is not overwhelming and then Salt is also used for sterilizing. Salt is also used for snuffing out life. For example, famously after the Third Punic War, the salting of the fields of Carthage. Um, you know, so they couldn't grow things anymore because they were the fields were salted. Nothing would grow. And wow. my daughter recently did an experiment with parsley. She was growing mm. parsley in three different pots. And in mm. one pot, she didn't put any salt. And then in one pot, she put a lot of salt. And mm. then in the third pot, pot, she put just a little bit of salt. Mm. And then she watered them um, dutifully. And the one without any salt, we still have. And the other two are gone. <laughs> you know, they just, they can't survive. Even a little bit of salt. Oh, I see. Yeah, and then I experienced that because I'm a kind of a fanatical composter. I try every day to take the scraps to the compost pile. And uh, if I am have some leftover, like I'll go to the food pantry and get uh, corn chips that are slight. Turns out they're slightly rancid, you know, because they're a little bit out of date. And then I'll start eating them. It's like, ah, these are rancid. Can't put them on the compost pile. Got to put them on my midden, I think is the term that my friend Janet uses for it. I have kind of a pile of organic material that is not going to decompose fast enough for the compost pile, like uh, avocado pits, avocado skins, pistachio shells, uh, various, in, and also um, I put the oranges back there because they're too acidic for banana, the Banana for the soil. Peel? Banana peels go into the uh, into the regular combos, hmm. and but all this changes when uh, the bears wake up. When the bears wake up, we stop putting any fruits and any little bits of leftover egg in the compost pile because it'll attract the bears. Then we have to throw them into the real garbage. Tragically, so I'll just say salt is woven into our lives as a physical property and additive to food and also used in a lot of chemical processes, et cetera, et cetera. But I thought that our principal address to salt falls more to its literary use, as well as, I think, more pointedly, its psychological Mm. meaning or value. And Um, maybe philosophical meaning, if one may speak of the philosophy of salt. Yeah. So I thought that was going to be sort of our principal interest. And, you know, coming out of the various in our talks references to salt and specifically to the passage in the Bible 
following, I guess, just prior to the destruction of the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the interesting biblical reference to Lot's wife, who's turned into a pillar of salt. Was it that, and, or uh, was it the quote from St. Matthew? Yeah, yeah. Originally, that was that was what launched us into this subject, was uh, that line, if the salt shall lose its savor, wherefore, or something, I don't know. It's like, you are the salt of the earth. That's what Jesus says to his disciples. But if the salt shall lose its savor, forget what happens then. That's from the Sermon on the Mount. That's the, the most uh, well-known sermon that Jesus gives. Mm. And uh, I, I, I looked into it a little bit. First, let me read the entirety of the quotation from the Gospel according to Matthew. Is that okay? Yeah. Absolutely. And that's uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor... How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but out a lamp stand, and it gives lights to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So salt here and light are meant to be thought of together, and both salt and light have properties which uh, affect things around them. And salt is, uh, is used to enhance flavor, of course, as you mentioned, Sparrow, and as a preservative. To be salt means deliberately to seek to, um, I think, influence the people that one encounters. Mm. And within the, the context of um, Christian social ethics as espoused by Jesus, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, it has to do with um, the expression of unconditional love, agape, Christian love, that, that this, will, this will flavor the world ethically in the way that salt flavors in the way that salt transforms um grain for example into something that's more palatable or enjoyable fascinating um it reminds me a little bit of uh, the the tm people transcendental meditation people they have had and maybe still have this theory that if a certain percentage of people meditate in a country the crime will go down uh, general well-being will be increased. Uh, the country won't start a war. And they've done this research. I don't know how valid it is, but, you know, like real scholarly research where they, they find a place where 1% of the population meditates and then they, you know, measure all these factors of depression and, uh, you know, uh, unemployment. I don't know, these different factors. And supposedly they prove that if 1% meditate, everybody's better. Like, they're like the salt that's, that, that flavors the rest of the, of the population. It's the same metaphor, I think. Wouldn't you say, Andrew? Yeah, same I would idea. say it's similar. I mean, I, as you were, you were describing transcendental meditation, I was thinking about Scientology as well. Mm. The Scientology, um, espouses this notion that the larger number of Scientologists there are in the population, 
the less war there will be, the less criminality, and mm. uh, less mental illness. Mm. That putting their um, their ideas to practice will salt the earth in a way that's um, ethically positive, virtuous. It's a metaphor we can trace across many faith traditions, probably. Isn't there um, something that's yeah. roughly analogous in Judaism? Huh. Well, I think that coming out of Judaism, and though more specifically treating the various parables of Jesus that, you know, come out of hmm. the Jewish tradition, um, and, you know, are often interpretations of, you know, what we call the Old Testament, you know, that Jesus uh, articulated, I turned to Maurice Nichol. Mm -hmm. Do you know who Maurice Nichol was? No, I don't know. No, no, I don't know. Yeah, he was a Scottish man whose father was a deacon of some sort in the Episcopal Church, and he, uh, I believe, was born in the 1887 is what mm. comes to mind, though I'm not positive. He, you know, went to school, went to Cambridge. Mm. He fought in the First World War at Gallipoli. It's huh. a terrific movie, by the way, by Bruce Beresford. Like, it's actually a film. It's a great, um, it's a good film. Good war film, most About Gallipoli. It's called Gallipoli, right? Yeah, yeah. At any rate, he came out of the war, you know, uh, completed his studies at Cambridge, and then met Ospensky, I think in 1920, in the early 20s, 23, oh. around in there. And then subsequently met the uh, Gurdjieff and oh. became a student initially of Ospensky and then Gurdjieff over in Fontainebleau in France. And oh. he, you know, was a teacher of the, you know, fourth way, I guess is mm. how it's typically talked about. And he wrote a series of commentaries called psychological <laughs> <laughs> psychological commentaries on the teachings of Gurdjieff and Ospensky. Absolutely a, a brilliant text of, you know, maybe a thousand pages. And, and they're principally, I believe, transcriptions of different talks that he gave on the teachings. And then he also wrote a book called The Mark, which is a kind of terrific primer, almost analogous to In Search of the Miraculous, Ospensky's book. Um, uh, the full title is In Search of the Miraculous Fragments of a Lost Teaching. Mm -hmm. And uh, the mark is sort of analogous to that in that it's a terrific introduction to, you know, what is called the work or fourth way teachings. And it principally deals with the Bible and the parables and sort of seeking to synthesize the ways in which Gurdjieff and Ospensky's insights may be sown back into the New Testament variously. And he has a definite section of about 20 pages in which he talks about salt. And it doesn't appear anyplace else in the book, so it's kind of concise. The section in which it appears is called Transformation, and it's very interesting. The one thing I wanted to point out about this book, and I don't mean to drag us into Gurdjieff land, but I did want to point out, in terms of our discussion about walking on the earth and our feet, the 
he has this one paragraph at the beginning of the first section of this book, uh, that is the beginning of part one, in which he talks about that. Could I read that really quick? Because I think yeah, it's relevant. Sure. Okay. Definitely. He writes, a man. Now, you know, this is written in, in the 1950s, so that was oh. a common um, turn of phrase, you know, regarding just human being. A man touches the earth with his physical feet. But he touches life with his psychological feet. <laughs> his most external psychological level is sensual, a matter of sensation, a matter of the senses. That is, his most external thinking and feeling arise from what he perceives from sense. This level represents the feet of his psychological being as distinct from the feet of his physical being. And the kind of shoes which cover his feet represent his particular views, opinions, and attitudes that he wears or uses in his approach to sense-given life. Without your five senses, external life would not exist for you. And then paragraph, how does a man... And then in italics, walk the earth. We speak here psychologically. How does his outermost psychology relate itself to external life? So at any rate, then he goes into, at the beginning of Transformation of Man, and then the subtitle for that is The Salt of the Earth. And so there you have it. I have lots of notes and you know, things that I've excised from these pages. Is he yeah. he's saying that the thing, the salt of the earth, is the transformational man? What, what, what was that piece? How does he define the salt of the earth as a, um, as a type, as an expression of humanness? He's speaking about a special idea connected to the kingdom of heaven. Ah. Yeah. And salt here is used um, as many words as many nouns in the parables, it's being used in a special sense and, in fact, in a technical sense. Mm. And that, in fact, for Nickel, the New Testament is a kind of blueprint and manual for executing a kind of alchemy. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking about salts, chemistry and alchemy and how salt i don't know the history of salt i don't know much about chemistry i flunked out of chemistry in uh, uh at cornell that's partly why i'm here uh, now uh, as a uh, failure in life but um i think that the uh salt may be part in a literal sense of chemical experiments in fact that was the subject i was going to read to you from that was the uh section of literature that I found about was about uh, this guy Talbot, who was one of the founders of one of the guys who invented photography and how he used salts, not the salt, not the salt you eat with, but salts that are used, chemi chemical salts, helped yeah. him figure out how to, how to invent photography. Wait, so it, well, the, one some, thing I would, the one yeah. thing I would say, because I think we should hear that, is that from Nichols' perspective, Christ was a kind of organic chemist. Oh. And that chemistry has to do with the transformation of 
human beings into a new form of human being. That's the it has um, to do with levels of transformation that you rise to a higher level. And indeed, according to Nickel, the parable of Lot's wife is all about this. Really? Uh, yeah. About so, some sort of alchemical transformation. Yeah, the the concept of transfiguration, that, that, that Jesus was able to transfigure things. I love it. Human beings, the transformation of water into wine as, as a metaphor. But I, I, I love it within the moral language of love, that, that he was able to perform these transformations, exercise this alchemy ethically and spiritually within the human realm. That's the piece of Christianity that's always appealed to me the most on a personal level. Hmm. What What is transfiguration, uh, Andrew? I never really, I don't know how it differs from any kind of transformation. It has some kind of specific uh, meaning in Catholicism, I guess, right? Well, it's it's the movement into, um, uh, it's the growth of the spirit in you. It's the growth of incarnation. It's 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 the movement towards becoming eventually pure, pure spirit. Yeah. I'm sorry, he doesn't use transfiguration. He no, uses he uses the word transformation. Transformation, sure. Um, yeah. Related, but but different. But what, can you say a little more about how Lot's wife is an expression of of of, of change? What what is it in Lot's wife that Nichols locates? I'm fascinated by that. I know that uh, Wikipedia said one theory about Lot's wife is that you know she turned around to see the destruction of of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, which God is destroying these cities for being evil. I believe. I think that's pretty much accepted. And by doing so, she saw God. She saw the glory of God. And that turned her, that's one theory, you know, and that, that turned her into a pillar of salt. So in a sense, that sounds like it could mean something like what Nichols means. You know? And a little bit tied up with the birth of Dionysus, you know, similarly, the mother of Dionysus, uh, asked Zeus, who was her lover, to see him in his true form. And he said, no, I don't want to do that, because if I showed you who I really am, I would destroy you. Hmm. And she said, no, 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 dude, I got to see it. You know, whip it out. Let me see what you got. And he said, oh, wow. Well, I have to, you know, do I have to. I don't know why he did it. To then he turned the, into, yeah, you he have turned, to fulfill the wishes of your devotees if you're God. Maybe I, I guess, yeah, I was going to say maybe that might have something to do with it. But at any rate, he transformed into what he is, which was pure light. And she was immediately, you know, fried. And as she was being fried, he reached in and grabbed out uh, Dionysus, who was in her womb, and put him into his thigh. Oh, right. Showed up the thigh. Yeah, to, and then to finish the gestation. Yeah, crazy. So I guess hmm. it would be analogous to that. Yeah, that's not what Nichols says at all. Oh. Yeah. What's Nichols say? Well, this, uh, like, can I read or not? Or Yeah, read know. it. I mean, yeah. let me just read a paragraph. The story of Lot's wife, as told in the Old Testament, has a psychological meaning. But we can, of course, regard it as a literal story, describing how a woman, by looking back, was turned into a pillar of salt. Yet this view is scarcely possible if we take into consideration 
a remark made in the Gospels that refers to Lot's wife. Christ is speaking in a very strange way about what he calls the, quote, consummation of the age, end quote, or the, quote, end of the world, end quote. He says, quote, as it comes to pass in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But in the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. After the same manner, shall it be in the day that the Son of God is revealed? In that day, he which shall be on the housetop and his goods in the house, let him not go down to take them away. And let him that is in the field likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Mm -hmm. And that's from Luke uh, 17, refrain 28 through 32. Well, that's a pretty complicated teaching. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder the disciples are always befuddled. I right. find everything Jesus says completely mystifying, I must say. I think some of it is just, you know, he just, just nonsense. That's my opinion. <laughs> a lot of it is just like one farmer foes, sows his field. He's got barley. The next farmer sows his field. He's got oats. Some of the oats grow in with the barley. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Like, what does that mean? It doesn't make any sense. Well, according to Nickel, the there's a sort of progression within the context in which it appears in the Bible. The setting just prior to the parable of Lot's wife, as I mm. recall, has to do with the story of Abraham and Sarah, which uh, we've touched on previously, in yeah. which these two men, these two angels, We're come three. to them yeah. and say, uh, "It's all about no. It's all about hospitality. Yeah, it's, it's uh, about Abraham welcoming the angels of God into his tent, and that doesn't happen in the next story." Which is the story, and and he doesn't know that they're angels. He doesn't he real. He's seeing, he thinks they're just normal people. I mean that that's what I mean. It's anybody can be hospitable to angels, except and, the people of Sodom who are trying to uh, how to put it gently have anal sex with them. You know, it's it's about in Sodom there isn't hospitality, right? They're, they're yeah. not let they're not let in. Um, they're they're left in the streets. Um, so I know um, they're Peter, almost sodomized. Well, Peter Gomes, who was the um, priest or the reverend, rather, at Harvard, when I was at Harvard Divinity School, he was like the uh, chaplain for the undergraduates. He, he was a black Oscar Wilde. He dressed like a dandy. He lived in a little <laughs> house called Sparks House. He was um, referred to himself as Afro-Saxon. <laughs> he walked around with a cane, and he had a um, very dignified way of speaking, You know, a brilliant preacher. But he said he he didn't believe it had to do with the uh, the sodomy, the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That it, mm -hmm. it was Yahweh punishing the people for their lack of hospitality, and that's why that story is juxtaposed with Abraham and his tent, the the angels showing up looking um, for you know, communion. And then the angels prophesy so. the the birth of Isaac. The angels tell 
uh, Sarah that she's going to get pregnant. And she's 99 years old. She laughs. And I think Isaac comes from the word for laugh. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think that Nickel in this book, he is, you know, making constant reference to the New Testament, but it's not exclude, you know, his transmission uh, based on his understanding, you know, and his integration of the Gurdjieff Ospensky system is far flung and is, um, you know, perhaps the deepest comprehensive transmission of the teachings outside of these various schools that still exist, you know, where you have meetings and so forth and talk and do practice. But according to to Nickel and his interpretation of the parable of Abraham and Sarah and the meeting of these angels, he focuses on the angel's transmitting to Sarah that she was would be with child and would give birth to a child, which she laughs off. And again, you know, there's a saltiness to laughter. <laughs> but according to Nickel, the parables and the whole of the old and, you know, the parables of the New Testament and, and Jesus's teachings are all laced with an esoteric language and that the different events of the Old Testament as interpreted by Jesus and also here in this case by Nickel are representative of psychological transformation and the evolution of human consciousness. And in the case of the story of Abraham and Sarah, Sarah giving birth to a child is associated with Sarah giving birth to a new level of consciousness. Hmm. And that in terms of the sequence in the Bible, that story coming on just prior to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his wife is that in order to rise to a new level of consciousness, you need to get rid of the old level of consciousness, that you must die to this life in order to be born to the next. The way Sodom and Gomorrah died, you mean? Right. That Those are all representations. And you'll recall that Lot meets these angels, and the angels are brought into his house. And for Nickel, the idea of a house actually has to do with that sort of primordial metaphor of a human being or the human being being likened to a house. Mm -hmm. So it has to do with one's inner reality versus the outer reality, the men in the streets. And when the angels say, oh, we're now, you know, going to take out this, uh, take out these cities of the plain. But with Lot, he negotiates with the angels and they want him to go up into the mountains. They say, you must leave the cities of the plain and go up into the mountains. And he's, and he, and Lot, is like, ah, I don't know if I can get up to the mountains. 
I don't want <laughs> to go on this long journey. I don't know if I can make it. Uh, my two daughters, my wife, it's too much. But can I go to this other city, the city of Zoar, Z-O-A-R, mm -hmm. which is a, another city that's nearby, but not Sodom and Gomorrah. And I believe that Zoar is, means little, mm -hmm. that it's a little city. And so what Nickel is saying is that Lot is not prepared for the big transformation of going up into the mountains, but he's willing to make a little transformation to this other city. And it's true of most urban dwellers, you know, uh, because, you know, we know it from living in the mountains. Like people come to visit you from New York and they're, you know, they get here and they say, oh, it's so nice up here in the mountains, so calm, so peaceful. After about two hours, they're like jumping out of their skin and they're looking at the bus schedule to see how early they can get out of here. So as opposed to if they'd gone to Pittsburgh, you know, they might be able to handle that transition a little more elegantly. According no. to Nickel, you know, these Sodom and Gomorrah represents our human identification with getting and selling and sowing and reaping and all of these outer confirmations of our existence hmm. versus, versus, according to Nickel, a life of meaning. Nickel would say God is meaning. If you want, I'll read you uh, this short thing where he speaks specifically of that. Quoting from John, the following, At the beginning of time, in quotes, meaning already was, and God had meaning with him, and God was meaning. So I think that's his translation of what's more commonly referred to as you know, in the beginning, the word yeah. was, and the and God was the word, and the word was God. Yeah, the word was with God, and the word was God, I think is the translation right. in the King James Bible. And then Nickel goes on, when a man finds no meaning in anything, he has at the same time no feeling of God. Hmm. Meaninglessness is a terrible disease. Hmm. It has to be got over. It is the same as godlessness, because if you say there is no God, you are saying that there is no meaning in things. But if you think there is meaning, you believe in God. Meaning is God. You cannot say that you do not believe in God, but believe that there is meaning in things. The two are the same, in that one cannot be without the other. God mm. is meaning, mm. italicized. Mm. If mm. you dislike the word God, then say meaning instead. The word God shuts some people's minds. The word meaning cannot. It opens the mind. Mm. And nice. then he, he goes on, meaning was before time began. It was before creation. For creation occurs in running time, in which birth and death exist. Birth and death belong to the passage of time, but meaning was before time, and creation in time began. 
there is no way of describing existence in the higher dimensional world outside time, save by the language of passing time, of past, present, and future. Meaning is, not was, before the beginning of creation in time. It does not belong to what is becoming and passing away, but to what is above time. If then there is meaning above our heads, what is our meaning in creation? It reminds me of, uh, there's a teaching in Judaism, if I got it right, that the the letters in the Torah created the world, something like that. You know, this idea of this kind of, that the, that the, these doctrines were before the world. It also reminds me of like my relationship with my sort of normal, secular, materialist friends who, you know, like something happens to them and they're just like, ah, bad luck. You know, the uh, roof is leaking, no good. I got to get it fixed. You know, and it's like, you sort of, when you live a life, kind of a mystical, mystical kind of life, it's like, well, the, you know, for some karmic reason, my roof is leaking. And I'm meant to go through this experience of having a leaking roof to kind of teach me something about the consciousness of putting the pots under the leaks and being aware of the fragility of a roof and how how our life can be at any moment transformed. You know, it's like you start to see everything as having some kind of teaching purpose as opposed to just being a series of arbitrary occurrences. And if you say that to some normal person, they're just like, you know, don't don't uh, be a, don't give me a sermon, you know. I want my roof fixed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very much in keeping with this interpretation of of Lot's wife, which has to do with something that actually connects with Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah. Mm. The under the underlying meaning that Nickel points toward is the idea that on the path of transformation, you can't look back. Oh. Yeah. That you can't invite or integrate or try to make that toward which you're moving, this new incarnation, hmm. out of aspects of that the old self, which, hmm. you know, to be frank, the old self has to do with selfishness, has to do with hmm. self-identification. Hmm. And the idea is that, you know, for a tree to become a tree, it can't remain a seed. Right, right. I, yeah. Just what I was thinking, because when I went to Cornell, like on my orientation week, I met this guy, Peter. He was an Essene, you know, he was following the Essene uh, tradition, you know, that were the mystics at the time of Jesus that lived in the desert, didn't eat cooked foods, had this kind of ascetic life. And he wrote in my notebook, he said, in order for a seed to grow, it must first burst its, what did he say? Like its husk of limitations. It's something of limitation. Just that same metaphor. Right. The idea is that Lot's wife, in turning back, 
perhaps mm. with a wistfulness or curiosity, perhaps purient um, as the fire and brimstone rain down, mm. um, because they were forewarned. And it, it actually is a little bit analogous to Orpheus and Eurydice, right? Huh. Uh, that her disobeying this interdiction from uh-huh. the angels and turning back and looking is a metaphor for transformation and for Lot's transformation, where there was a part of him, perhaps mm. you could say his wife, who in turning back becomes sterile, is no mm-hmm. longer capable of growth because she or he or the transformation was spoiled <laughs> by seeking to take it, you know, trying to remain in the old self. So that that's how Nickel sees it in relation to, you know, this carryover from Abraham, Sarah, that story. And that also, in order for Isaac to be born, there needs to be a death, mm. you know, that in order to, you know, it's like when you have a $10 bill in your hand um, and somebody offers you a 20 for your 10, you have to let go of the 10 in order to get the 20, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I wonder, I mean, I found myself thinking about the parallels with Eve, you know, Eve in in the Garden of Eden who um, disobeyed God and seemed to be uh, also motivated by curiosity, let's say, you know, that's one hypothesis, logical hypothesis, that um, God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, uh, you know, uh, Eve starts to be curious, well, what will happen if we do that? Maybe maybe it's for the best if we do that. Maybe God's wrong. And uh, this seems similar that God says, whatever you do, don't turn back. And there's a way of reading the the story of the the Garden of Eden that uh, that Eve was did did what was right did what was correct because one way to look at it is okay Adam and Eve were like children they had the option to just do everything God told them like an obedient child or they had the option to leave the garden leave this kind of protected crib and and find out for themselves about life learn for themselves what's right and what's wrong create their own existentialist life rather than just being a passive uh, sheep uh, do everything god tell them to do so that's uh, that that's why we live in this world i mean obviously that is the uh, origin myth of the of human society according to the bible and mm-hmm. and there's a lot to be said for what Eve did. Did I think you could see it as a positive? I I tend to see it. I think it was written by a patriarchal religion that was trying to, uh, you know, frame the woman as the uh, source of all human evil. And yet the story still has a, an element where you sort of admire Eve for for daring to defy this uh, all powerful God. Mm-hmm. But what about what about uh, uh, Lot's wife, who I think is nameless? Oh, it says here in the uh, Wikipedia that the uh, the Mishnah, which is like one of the com- Jewish commentaries on the Bible, says her name is Edith, <laughs> which really I didn't see Edith. coming. 
Edith, but uh, which I guess is a Hebrew name. You know that th ending is uh, is uh, often um, you know from Hebrew. Well, but anyway, what is my point? That uh, is there a way to see her? Her as having done the right thing, looking at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe that was, maybe becoming a pillar of salt is preferable in some ways to going off and having sex with your children, which is what Lot is about to do. Isn't that right? Doesn't he go off and have sex with his daughters? They they seduce Uh, him. Yeah, right in the next uh, next scene. Yeah, one after the other. I believe for Nicol, that again is instances of giving birth of new life and uh, it's not necessarily picking up on sort of like an incest right per se yeah but going back to eve i mean if you're just following the rules and mm. god reveals himself and says x y and z and then you're like oh okay then that's a sterile life. You're just mm. following orders. It does not connect to your own innate possibilities of transformation. Yeah. You know, it doesn't allow it's a you... a static life. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't allow you agency. And indeed, I mean, you know, I think that it also goes back to Lucretius. And the idea of the clinamen, that you need that deviation in order to enter into the complexities of possibility. To create the world. Forms. That yeah. swerve is what's, according to uh, Lucretius, all the, all the atoms were falling. For people that didn't listen to our previous podcast, all the atoms were falling kind of parallel to each other like rain. And one of them swerved, and that's essentially created the universe. Yeah. yeah. I was, was thinking true. about it recently watching the snowfall, you know, with my <laughs> with my new eyes. Oh yeah. And yeah, I was looking out the window watching the snowfall all in this very measured way, like equidistant. Um mm. the snowflakes falling. Socially the, distant. Yeah, socially distant, absolutely. And then though with my new eyes, I was able to see the unique characteristics of each mm snowflake as it fell Mm. past Mm. my view which i thought was an interesting way of complicating lucretius a little bit even without the swerve there's still uh differentiation still uh, uniqueness right lucretius could be wrong yeah like each raindrop as a sphere is reflecting as a mirror structure a different view Mm, i see in a literal sense yeah yeah, that's interesting. But anyway, I do want to say that, I, you know, I, I like the idea of uh, questioning or even uh, defying these uh, biblical pronouncements. Yeah, I mean, no offense to Nichols. You know, I uh, it sounded it's a, very interesting. But um, I think it's also one, like we said uh, the other day, you know, we, I think there's something to be said for holding two opposite ideas in your mind, as uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald said, as the definition of something, maturity or something. And so, you know, I think on, a, on one level, I could see it as, yes, you know, you shouldn't look back on the past. You should, uh, you should move forward with your transformation. Makes sense. On the other side, well, why not defy the deity? 
and 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 look for yourself. See what it looks like to destroy uh, the world. I think uh, in uh, Camus talks about these existential heroes, Camus or Sartre, like uh, Don Quixote, I think is one of them. People that refuse to do what they're told, that maybe are a little insane, branded as insane or branded as reprobates or outlaws. But, uh, you know, so maybe it's okay to turn and look at, at God's handiwork with your own eyes, even if it means being turned into a pillar of salt. Maybe it's worth it to uh, defy the uh, the Almighty and his uh, patriarchal uh, pronouncements. <laughs> I think also in that light, it's interesting to reflect on Orpheus and mm. that in part, I mean, Orpheus is the uber poet. He makes and... the sun rise by singing, right? Yeah, and he makes the trees weep and so on and so forth. Yeah, and that perhaps the role of the poet, you know, you know, according to the terms of his being told not to turn around or he would lose Eurydice, and turning around anyway, mm. um, that sense of defiance. Yeah, I, I agree with Camus, you know, that these are exemplary figures this and what happens eurydice is uh half the year she's she's banished no 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 no. that's uh that's demeter and persephone um eurydice just you know she she um recedes and returns to the underworld and never to return never to return and orpheus has you know a continuation of his plot line he ends up being torn to shreds on the island of lesbos by whom? By dogs? What are they Bac- called? Bacchae. But yeah, but the uh, Bacchants. Oh. By the Bacchants. Uh-huh. It, which brings us event. back to Dionysus, because they're the followers of Dionysus, who was yeah. born out of his the father's thigh. <laughs> and that's how they worship Dionysus, is by going on these like insane, uh, deadly sort of sprees where they eat every animal in sight. Yeah, these rampages, very similar in some respects, you know, to the storming, to the sea. I know, that's what I was thinking. Capital. Yeah. Yeah, it was a bacchanalia of sort. It was a, it was a, what do you call that? Lord of misrule. When you, there, there's a, a tradition where one day out of the year, the, uh, there's different versions of it, but there's maybe in England where the mayor becomes, uh, the servant. And some child or some fool becomes the mayor, and um, everything is reversed. There's like a reversal of uh, of roles, mm-hmm. and and for one day there's kind of uh, chaos, and and the uh, the people that are normally at the bottom of society become on top, and vice versa. Yeah, backwards day. I recall that the Weechol Indians. Um, in Mexico, you know, in the Sierra Nevada mountains, they would go on these peyote hunts. There was a particular area where they would go to harvest the peyote to take back up, you know, up into the mountains. And as they approach the area where the peyote is growing, mm. they enter into backward speech. Mm. They begin to say everything. Backwards, like if it's 
clouded over and it's going to rain soon, they would turn they would turn to each other and say, "Ah, this is a beautiful day, cloudless, cloudless day. The mm. sun is shining." Mm. And so on. Everything that they said would be backwards. And so there's an that's interesting in terms of sort of one's approach to the divine, perhaps, mm, yeah. is that you enter into an alternative, parallel, backwards. <laughs> and part of what, you know, in speaking backwards is that it forces you to be present. You know, you can mm, no, mm. you can't engage in automatic or habitual or mechanical speech if mm. you're constructing all your sentences the other way around. Yeah, something I do in my uh, poetry or when I'm writing a poem I'll I'll have an idea and then I'll and then I'll sometimes write the opposite of my thought because it just turns out the opposite is more uh beautiful. Right. It's more surprising. Yeah, I like that. You just like reverse i wish i could think of an example but uh you know you 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 like uh today i wrote this poem it's called dear reader uh it goes please don't judge me by this wretched poem maybe that's not a good example that's the word wretched example. came into my mind and then i thought oh, i'll use it in a poem but wh wh what does nichols say about why Lot's wife turns into salt. Why specifically salt? What's the uh, oh yeah? What's the symbolic import there? Because it has salt in its one of its incarnations, and that's an interesting question because there's another uh, saying from the Bible that he notices that probably we should um, speak of. But I believe it's salt in its sterility. Another yeah, I think words, that's how people, most people interpret it, having to do with sterility. What's that association about? I, I, I don't think... I'm, well, in other words, you know, like my daughter experimented on the oh, parsley right. and, you know, put some salt in parsley, you know, on the ground and then watered it and it died. I mean, the uh, the Wikipedia said it was the other way around, that first there was a pillar of salt. And then they came up with a story about it. And it says, the story appears to be based in part on a folk legend explaining a geographic feature. Oh. A pillar of salt named Lot's wife is located near the Dead Sea at Mount Sodom in Israel. The Mishnah states that a blessing should be said at the place where the pillar of salt is. The term Lot's wife for such a geographical feature subsequently entered common parlance. The, the Jewish historian Josephus claimed to have seen the Pillar of Salt, which was Lot's wife. Its mm. existence is also attested to by the early church fathers, Clement of Rome and Irenaeus. So I, I think a lot of what happens in the Bible is, uh, in the Old Testament, particularly in Genesis, is uh, there's the existence of various places and then the place will have a name and then they'll come up with a, a, a false etymology for example of the name yeah i have kind of the advantage on you guys because i edit these sessions and so we we've been here before you know the eternal return is working yeah and almost like in the same way um you know you, you transmitted this news 
previously, and I don't recall what the podcast was. And what I'm about to say, I said before, which is that there's <laughs> that whole thesis of the nature of the Odyssey having been a primer for learning the geology of the Mediterranean. Oh, okay. I don't remember that. I'm not sure that's true because I, I, I don't, but it might be. The one thing I would say, though, is that Nickel does treat this other instance of the evocation of salt, and that is um, when Christ is with his disciples, and he writes, this is what Christ said when his disciples were quarreling about who should be first. I don't recall what the context is, but, you know, they're arguing about who should be the, you know, first disciple or and then to them, Christ said, have salt with one another. Hmm. And then he and then Nickel goes on. What then does have salt with one another mean? Christ said to his dis disciples, quote, everyone shall be salted with fire. Salt wow. is good. If the salt have lost its saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourself and be at peace one with another. Hmm. And then he goes on. There's the common phrase related to a man who is not overwhelmed by life and so negative. Quote, he has good salty talk as what preserves what keeps things from going bad in oneself. A man can easily take the continually charging, changing events of life. The same for everyone, with or without salt. He can be broken, depressed by them or not. In that case Christ spoke of, the disciples were disputing about who was the best, who was first. One of the commonest sources of self-pity, grievance, and resulting violence not to be able to laugh at oneself, to take oneself tragically, is absence of salt. A little wit about oneself, yes, a little salt of wit, will give another approach to life. Real esotericism should give a man salt, as sectarian religion so rarely does. That's kind of a good point difference between religion, and this is something that I've kind of noticed, actually, the, the, the difference between religion and spirituality is uh, that religion never has a sense of humor. And, and people that are following some kind of mystic path tend to be quite funny, tend to have a sense of the absurd. Religion is kind of pious and solemn. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that the historical figure, if he actually existed of Christ, um, can't imagine he didn't have, uh, you know, some laughter in his gut. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.